Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 9. Now Genesis 9, by the way, has two sections. And uh, the first section, verses 1 through 17, is God's covenant with Noah. The flood, you know, the flood subsided. Um, They're coming out of the ark there at the end of chapter 8. And now God uh, gives Noah what's known as the Noahic covenant. And there's three aspects to Noah's covenant, or to the Noahic covenant that we'll be looking at this morning. That's the first section of chapter 9. The second section of chapter 9 is verses 18 through 28. And that deals with Noah's sin. You might go, oh, he sinned? Yes, he sinned. And uh, we'll talk about that. And uh, we'll talk about his son's reactions to it and Noah's reactions to them as a result. And then the chapter ends with a description of the end of Noah's life. And so um, that's what chapter 9 is about. We'll be looking at that this morning. Um, so the first section it deals with a, what we call the Noahic covenant. And beginning with verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this is the same command that God had given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he had created them. He's repeating the same command now to Noah and to his sons and their wives. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's typical of God. God allows second chances in life. How many of us have had second chances? God has given us over and over and over again second chances. And the blessing here, it's the same as the original, um, but the circumstances have changed. You know, God hasn't changed. His blessings haven't changed. But the circumstances, of course, the post-flood world would be totally different. And, uh, and although the blessing is the same, God's heart has not changed, man's circumstances have changed. And so there are some differences now. And that's what he's going to be talking about now in the rest of these verses. And the first difference involves the animal kingdom. Look at verse 2. It says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. You'll recall that God had told Adam to have dominion over the animals. And just like Adam, Noah now has and his descendants, including us today, have dominion over the animal kingdom. But the relationship between the animals and man prior to the flood uh, was different than it will be now after the flood. Animals would now have the fear and dread of man. And if you think of it in the pre-flood, I mean, God had brought all the animals to Adam there in the Garden of Eden and said, Adam, you name them. You know, so all the animals came there... Adam gave names to all the different animals. Um, Think about when Eve was in the Garden of Eden and a serpent, talking serpent, you know, is talking to her. You know, she didn't freak out. It's a talking serpent or I'm afraid of serpents or whatever. You know, it's just there there wasn't that animosity. Um, Even before the flood there, God brought all the animals two by two plus the other ones that we talked about, the seven of each kind of the clean and unclean or the clean animals. God brought them to Noah and they went into the ark. And uh, none of the people on the ark got eaten. You know, I mean, they were all, I mean, who knows if a T-Rex was in there, whatever. You know, but it suggests that the animals were harmless 
prior to the flood. It, it just it suggests that. Now, it's, what's interesting to me is that was the post or the pre-flood age. Then we have the post-flood age where the animals, including today, they have the fear and dread of man. But you know, when you read about the millennium, once more, the animals are going to be harmless again. It says the child will be able to put his hand in a cobra's nest and nothing's going to happen. You know, the lion will lay down with the lamb. You know, the, it, it's going to be totally different like it was prior to the flood. It's amazing when you think about that. So, now animals, there might be another reason here. You know, animals before the flood probably were all herbivores, right? They probably just ate plants and stuff. But now some of them would be carnivores. And uh, if you think about it, there's, there's going to be a lot more animals roaming than, earth, than humans, at least to start out with. You know, there's eight humans, and there's all these animals. And uh, maybe God had just said, you know, I'm going to put the fear in them so that they'll leave you alone so that you can, you know, multiply and fill the earth and stuff. So they wouldn't become prey for all these hungry animals after being on a ship for a year. Um, I don't know, possible. But, you know, animals, we still see that covenant, that part of the covenant, right? Animals still have the fear of man even to this day. Um, Except for, there's probably a few exceptions. I heard some about some drone was flying around video, filming a, a great shark following these surfers. It was, I heard, I didn't, just in the news apparently. And they, this drone caught this great white shark following these surfers in the water. You know, there's a few exceptions where animals will hunt down humans. But generally, those are few exceptions. Generally, animals stay clear of humans. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that an elephant, you know, you think of how huge an elephant is, will gener- generally run away from a puny human. It'll generally try to stay clear of humans. I like what Adam Clark wrote uh, in his commentary. He says, did the horse know his own strength and the weakness of the miserable wretch who unmercifully rides, drives, whips, goads, and oppresses him? Would he not with one stroke of his hoof destroy his tyrant possessor? <laughs> That's just, I don't know. It's, if you think about it, these animals that are so ferocious, ferocious and so big, yet they're afraid of man and they try to stay clear of man. Um, and, you know, so generally they will, will avoid men, but don't corner them and don't threaten them because things change. Um, I remember, and I, maybe I've shared this story with you guys before, but when I was in the Coast Guard, I was stationed in Oregon for part of the time uh, by the Oregon Dunes um, coastline. And uh, I used to like going for walks along the dunes. They're just beautiful. Nobody's out there, especially in the winter when I was stationed there. Me and this other guy, we were walking once along these dunes by the water. And as we were coming down there, all of a sudden we saw the <coughs> cutest, cutest little harbor seal. It was a young pup harbor seal all by itself, you know, you know, and there's just like a little puppy. And, you know, they've got that just beautiful fur. It's just like the stuffed animals that you see that you can buy. Just, just like, oh, that looks so cute. And, you know, and it just looks so friendly. And, you know, oh, I wanted to go up and pet it. And so me and my friend, we were kind of walking up to it. Now, it was against the dune. And we were kind of beside the dune in the water. And we were walking up to the cutest little thing. And look, oh, that's cute. Let's get our camera out. Didn't have cell phones back then. You know, get a camera. Take, and everything was fine until we got between it and the water. <laughs> and as soon as we got it between it and the water, it had nowhere to go. It was flight or fright, right? Or whatever they call that. Fight or flight, whatever. Anyways, it bared its teeth, and it made a real low growl, and it, it went right at us. Man, we're like, whoa! <laughs> like, got out of the way. It went into the water and disappeared. And, and uh, it's like, man, that evil, evil animal. But anyways... Um, 
But you know, you guys, may, I'm sure my kids have stories camping where they've been, they were almost charged by, uh, I think it was an elk once or something. But anyways, um, so animals now have the fear of man. That is one thing that changed post-flood. Verse 3 says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So what that tells us is prior to the flood, um, man's diet was fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables, right? They were vegetarians prior to the flood. But now God is permitting them to eat meat. So, you know, you start thinking about that. Okay, let's, 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 okay. Prior to the flood, everybody was vegetarians, right? Nobody ate meat. Uh, and prior to the flood, everybody was really evil and wicked. And so God had to destroy all the wicked people, all those vegetarians and stuff. And so, you know, <laughs> if you're, <laughs> I'm joking. If you're a vegetarian here, I don't want to offend you, but uh, I just, but seriously, why did, why did God change that? Uh, what changed that God would say, now I want you to eat meat or you can eat meat? Um, Dr. Henry Morris, he's from the Creation Institute, um, Creation Research Institute. He has a couple reasons that he gives. The first reason I read it and I go, yeah, maybe, uh, but I don't know where he comes up with that, but it's possible. He says this, the reason for this change was due to the greater need for animal protein in man's diet in view of the nutrient-impoverished soils of the post-flood world and the much more rigorous climatic conditions. And so they needed more protein in their, you know, I'm like, okay, that's possible. I mean, I don't know. Um, His second reason and he even makes it like it's more of a possible and not, the first one is like, this is why, this one's possibly why. But the second one that he says is possibly why, to me, it makes more sense. And he says this, it's possibly to emphasize the great gulf between man and animals. Evolutionary and polytheistic philosophies then as now had seriously blurred that distinction. And so in my mind, maybe to me, that may simply be the reason was to create this, this understanding that there was a gap between mankind and the animal kingdom. It may just be that simple. Um, you know, if you think about it, evolution places man not above the animal kingdom, but right on par with the rest of the animals. That's, that's different from what God has ordained here in the book of Genesis. And, you know, with that thinking that animals and man are, you know, we're no different than the animal kingdom, that has a lot of implications, far-ranging implications. What's interesting to me is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul is describing to Timothy what's going to happen in the latter days. And listen to what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and listen to this, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So evidently, these deceiving spirits are going to command that people don't eat meat. And I, I just, I mean, that's what it's, that's how you read it. I mean, it's, to me, that's very interesting. 
um, I was part of my getting ready for this message. I started doing a little digging around and reading up on vegetarianism, and, and I came across a website having to deal with Christian vegetarianism. And as I was reading it, it's like, oh, I understand. It's a, it's a kinder, gentler Christianity. You know, you don't harm the little animals and everything. And they have reasons, their reasons for it. But listen, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, man, he was hungry. And he came to his disciples and he said, man, do you got any food? And you know what they gave him? They gave him broiled fish and honeycomb to eat. So he, he, Jesus ate meat. Now, again, I, you know, I, I don't want to offend someone here. Maybe there's somebody here who's a vegetarian or a vegan, which I don't even know what the difference is, but there's vegans and vegetarians. Um, if you're here, there's no problem, Okay. In fact, it just means that there's more meat for the rest of us. If we come to a potluck and you're like, I just like the veggies, go for it. We like the meat. So, um, but no, I, I, seriously, um, just realize this, because I know that some people can get really hung up on these things. Being a vegetarian or not, um, or being a meat eater or not, either way, it doesn't make you more spiritual than another believer. Either way, it doesn't make you more spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, not what goes into the mouth uh, defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. It's not what you eat. You're not any more spiritual if you don't eat meat or if you, you eat meat, you're not a you know, vegetarian or whatever. Um, in fact, Paul also says in Colossians 2, 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. So... It's not going to change your spirituality at all by you, you know, and the interesting thing is there have been some cults, uh, there have been other movements where that's what they have stressed to become more spiritual, you become a vegetarian. Um, Ellen G. White, Christian, Christian science, I think she's one of them that was purport, you know, kind of pushing that idea. So prior to the flood, Everybody was vegetarians, um, so that's, I guess I'm, one thing I'm thankful for the flood, because I like meat, but um, now post-flood, man can eat meat. But there was only one stipulation about eating meat, and it's in verse 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So even though God allowed man to eat animals, there was to be a proper respect for the blood of the animal. Why? Because the blood represented the life of the animal. Um, blood, if you read through the Bible, it's very important in the Bible. In fact, it's mentioned 424 times in the Bible. Listen to this. There's just a little list. Blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover. Remember, they had to put it on the doorposts. Um, blood sealed God's covenant with Israel. Blood sanctified the altar. Blood set aside the priests. Blood made atonement for God's people. Blood sealed the new covenant. Blood justifies us. Blood brings redemption. Blood brings peace with God. Blood cleanses us. Blood gives entrance to God's holy place. Blood sanctifies us. Blood, in Revelation 12, 11, enables us to overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And so blood is very important. Blood was represented the animal's life, and it was to be re, uh, treated with respect. And that brings us to the next aspect of Noah, the Noahic covenant, the basis of government. In verse 5, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from every hand of every beast. I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, 
by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So the basis for government, government, authorities, uh, not an individual, by the way, but authorities, government would now be authorized by God to carry out capital punishment. It was the right of government, but it wasn't only a right, it was a responsibility uh, for government. And uh, human life was to be valued, and that's why there was so much on, on the shedding of blood. It was so important. Why? Because man alone is made in the image of God. That's the reason why. You know, for me, I, I don't know if you've seen those commercials of the animal rights people, you know, and save little baby this and little baby that. I have nothing, I don't like harbor seals anymore. I mean, they could, you know, you know I'm just kidding. But um, what I have, <coughs> if you are, you know, really into animal rights, I, I respect that. But what I don't have respect for is those people that are really into animal rights, but they're also for pro-abortion because to me it's like, well, your, your priorities are just totally screwed up there. Um, and I think it's safe to assume that a lot of those people are pro-abortion, but again, that's just an assumption on my part. Um, now, some Christians, they advocate for the abolishment of capital punishment. It's been a big debate that's gone on for years. Um, and they might say, well, you know, this is the Old Testament, it's the Old Covenant, but by the way, this, what we're reading right now, it predates the law and the covenant and the old covenant. And uh, when we get to the New Testament, Paul says something interesting in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You know, we think about that as far as you know, traffic, speeding, you know, if you, if you, if you violate that law, you're going to get a ticket, you know, and those things. But Paul's going even deeper here. The governing authorities here that he explains that God appoints to execute wrath. They, they, they carry the sword, not in vain. There's only one reason for a sword, and that's to take someone's life. It's not to give a ticket. The sword is to take a life and to execute wrath. So it's a clear understanding about capital punishment. Um, there's no mistaking, I think, what Paul is referring to here. And we could, again, we could probably spend a lot of time on this subject by itself, but we're not going to. Um, but it's interesting. You know, now we have a new president, and, and uh, there's a, a good portion of our country that's rioting or, you know, they're, they're protesting and whatever they're doing because they don't, not my president type of a thing. And uh, I don't know where you stand on that, but I know eight years ago, you know, if we did the same thing, you know, it'd be totally different. You know, we'd be considered racists, basically, um, eight years ago, if we, if we did the same thing. Um, but it's interesting, when Paul wrote this, in, that I quoted to you in Romans um, chapter 13, the governing authority that he said was God's ministers, that God appointed them and were to be subject to them, that was Caesar Nero. I mean, that was about the worst emperor, one of the worst emperors 
that uh, you know he crucified or he didn't crucify he executed Christians, tortured Christians mercilessly in very very cruel ways. And this was the governing authority that Paul says, "Hey, God's put them in place. We're to be subject to them." It's fascinating when you think about it. Well, let's move on here. Verse eight. This is the last aspect here for the Noahic covenant. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, as, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God will never again destroy the earth by a flood of water. As Peter uh, tells us in Second Peter, next time he's going to use fire. If it won't be used water, he'll use fire. Um, you know what's interesting? A lot of people say Noah's flood, it was a localized flood. You know, it, was, it couldn't have been a global flood. It had to have been a local flood. Well, if that's true, then God here in verse 11 just lied. Because how many local floods have there been down through the ages all over the world? And, and he says, I'm never going to do it again. So th- that would mean that God would have lied. Um, it was a global flood. We talked a lot about that in the last couple chapters. Um, and this is the last aspect of the Noahic covenant, the establishing of the sign of the covenant. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is a covenant was for God to look at and to remember. When do rainbows appear? Well, often it's after a storm, right? A storm passes through and then it's like a beautiful rainbow. There's, there's two ingredients that are needed for a rainbow. Raindrops and sunlight, basically. And uh, usually when a rainbow happens, you know the storm's passed, right? The rain has passed, the sun's coming out. You get this beautiful rainbow. You know, thinking about it, you know, in kind of a spiritual terms, we all go through storms, right, in life. Um, that's one ingredient that's a given in our lives. You know, maybe, maybe right now you're going through a storm. Uh, maybe somebody else isn't going through a storm. Things are actually going pretty good right now in their lives. If that's the case, praise God. But, you know, you're either going into one or you're coming out of one, and you will be going. I mean, that's just, it's part of life, right? Storms occur in our lives, trials and, and difficulties and tribulations. Um, we can't avoid that ingredient. But when God is added into the ingredient, when the sun, S-O-N, is seen in the midst of the believer storms. You know, I think of the raindrops, but for many of us, they're teardrops, right? I mean, those raindrops are actually teardrops in our whatever trial we're going through. When the sun shows up, man, whatever that storm, it can turn into a beautiful thing. Um, they can be transformed into something beautiful. 
And I just think it's a beautiful picture. So God gave the rainbow as a sign of the covenant that he's making with Noah. And like I said earlier, it's a sign for him to remember his covenant that he would no longer destroy the earth with a flood. You know, it's interesting. Everywhere else in the Bible, when you read of the bow, because in the King James, it's just the bow. Here in New King James, it's the rainbow. But everywhere else in the Bible, the bow is identified with a weapon of war, right? The bow and the arrow. And uh, if you look at a, at a, at a, at a rainbow, um, and if you look at it as if it was a bow from a bow and arrow, it's actually pointing down towards the earth because that's where you would, you know, sh- shoot the arrow. Um, but it's missing something. What's it missing? It's missing the arrow. It's a bow without the arrow. Why? Because the arrow has already been shot. And, and I think it's just a beautiful picture of God's mercy. God's bow of wrath, man, it's pointed at mankind because of our sinfulness, uh, but it's empty. Why? Because the arrow's been shot. What's the arrow? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ satisfied God's righteous wrath against mankind. I think it's a beautiful picture. And so when God sees his weapon of wrath there in the sky, he remembers mercy. You know, uh, Habakkuk uh, 3.2 says this, in wrath, man, remember mercy. That's what God does. I've, I've, I've given this sign, so every time I see it, I'll remember my mercy towards you. So that's the Noahic covenant. Now we get to the second section of chapter 9. Chapter 9 takes a turn. It leaves the Noahic covenant, and we get into this here in verse 18. It says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, presumably, some time has elapsed since coming out of the ark. Uh, you know, the, the, for enough for at least for the vineyards to grow, for, for things, you know, the storms already passed. Obviously, the floods occurred. Things are somewhat, even though it's a new world, basically, for, for Noah and his sons, you know, things are somewhat returning to a new normal, right? And, and, and uh, so, you know, time has elapsed, the trial's over, and it looks like Noah probably let his guard down. And doesn't that happen with us? You know, when I'm going through the trial, man, that's when my prayer life is the greatest. Man, I'm on my knees praying, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm looking for answers. I'm seeking the Lord. The Lord's speaking to me. And, and, it, and it's, it, you know, as much as we like to avoid trials, that's a good place to be spiritually, because we're so dependent on the Lord during those things. But the problem is when we pass through and, we're, and things kind of resume back to things as normal and we don't have those difficulties, that's when it's easy to let our guard down. And it looks like that's what happened with Noah. Now, what I really appreciate about this, I mean, it breaks my heart that this happened to Noah, but what I appreciate about it is it really points out the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture. You know, God never hides man's warts and blemishes, even the most godly man like Noah. And he is godly. Listen, in Ezekiel, Noah in Ezekiel 14, verse 12 through 14, he's described as a righteous man. Listen to what Ezekiel says. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Then he says this, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Even these righteous men, 
Noah was a righteous man. Noah is mentioned in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He was an heir of righteousness. Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. God himself, Genesis 6, verse 8 and 9 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on, it says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I mean, can you get even a better reputation than that? All these people saying, you know, Noah was righteous. Even God saying, man, he's perfect in his generations. He walks with me. I mean, you can't get a much better reputation than that. And that's why it's so hard and so heartbreaking to read that Noah got drunk. Um, And think about this. He was 600 years old when the flood ended. So we don't know exactly when this occurred, but he was already in his 600s, middle-aged, you know, in those days and age. Uh, But, you know, 600 years of faithfully walking with God of faithfully, of preaching righteousness, of being a witness to a wicked world around him, of faithfully enduring 600 years of it. And some of the commentators, when you read about it, man, they want to excuse it away, and and they have differing reasons for why this happened. Well, he didn't know what happened, and it just, you know, nobody knew about alcohol at that point. And, you know, and there's all these different reasons. But, you know, Scripture is pretty plain here, pretty plain. He had too much to drink, and he got drunk. And he uncovered himself in his tent. Now, to me, that's a classic symptom of someone getting drunk, right? A little too much alcohol, they lose their inhibitions, and that always happens. And sounds to me like yeah, he was drunk, okay? Plain and simple. It doesn't give me why or anything, just he was drunk. Um, and in any event, how did his sons react? Because I think that's the bigger issue here. How did his sons react to their father's nakedness? Verse 22 And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, I've read some really wild things about this, but in Leviticus 18, uncovering someone's nakedness is associated with sexual relations. Um, And that may or may not be what's being described here, some kind of a sexual abuse. It may or may not. I'm not saying it is. But in Leviticus uncovering someone's nakedness is associated with that um but if we just take this at face value okay just we just read what it says and we don't read into it or try to say the least that ham did what was wrong was he looked on his father's nakedness and then he went out and told his brothers outside and from the hebrew it isn't that he just informed them oh by the way this is what dad's doing inside it's like he ridiculed his father and disrespected his father. He made, it was like his father was a specter. Look what, look at him. Look at this foolish guy. Look what he's doing. That's what the Hebrew seems to, to indicate. So that's what Ham did. Verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, I think there's a real spiritual application here for even for us here this morning. You know, if there's a brother or sister in the Lord in this fellowship, or, you know, someone that you know, is a, is, they've been a faithful follower of Christ. Um, They've they, they, they just been a great witness. Man, they're, they're just, they're rock solid. 
but they slip up. You know, there's one time they, they fall into a sin, they blow it, whatever. Somehow they blow it. How do you as a brother or sister in the Lord handle it? There's two ways to handle it, right? To handle it the way Ham did or to handle it the way Shem and Japheth did. The way Ham did it, he broadcasted it to others. So that's gossip. Guess what so-and-so did? You'll never believe this, you know? Um, uh, or do you ridicule and pass judgment? Because that seems to be what Ham did. Listen, what Ham did, it didn't just happen, okay? I mean, it's just like everything's going great, and then all of a sudden Ham sees his father like that, and then he ridicules him. There must have been inside of Ham at this point in his heart some disrespect for his father. Even though it wasn't vocalized, there was some kind of an attitude there, and this just presented the opportunity. We really have to guard our hearts as believers, especially towards other believers, because these things can happen. Um. So do you, as a brother or sister, respond like Ham did when, you're, when someone around you, a brother or sister, falls? Because we all fall, we all sin, we all blow it once in a while. Or do you respond like Shem and Japheth? Instead of broadcasting, gossiping, instead of judging and ridiculing, what did they do? They took a garment to clothe their naked father. Listen, Proverbs 12, 10, or 10, 12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Man, do you love your brother and sister? Listen, Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. I, I think it's just a beautiful picture of what Shem and Japheth did. They walked backwards into the tent because they were being careful. They didn't want to see their father's nakedness. Galatians 6, 1, Paul says this. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. These guys were just, I don't, I don't want to see my father's nakedness. And so they, can you imagine walking backwards into a tent with a, with a garment? Instead of looking at their father's failure, they wanted to see him clothed. And I think that's an important point. Uh, Paul even alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 5.16, and I think it's a challenge for all of us. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, when I look at my brothers and my sisters, and yeah, we all fail each other. We all, you know, we, we do things to offend each other, or we blow it. Maybe we say something we shouldn't, or we do something we shouldn't, or, or somehow we stumble. And, uh, you know, I don't want to look at you as a failure. I don't want to look at you as a, some rotten, oh, they're never going to amount to anything. They're, never, they're always goofing or screwing up or whatever. That's one way you can look at your brother or sister. Or it's, you know, or do you look at them in a different regard? Hey, you're not looking at them according to the flesh, but you look at them according to the spirit. He's a new creation in Christ. Or she was bought and paid for by the blood of the lamb. You know, there's a big difference in how we look at our brothers and sisters because it's not if somebody sins and blows it, man, it's when. Because it all it happens, okay? It happens. Um, don't look at their failures, their weaknesses. Look at them in light of how Christ looks at us. Man, I praise God that God is, doesn't look at me the way I am because he you know, he, I, I, I'm a loser, you know. But God doesn't look at me that way. He sees me. He sees me in, in perfection. And, and you guys know I'm not perfect. But God sees me that way because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And really, that's the way we're supposed to look at one another. It's an important concept here. 
So verse 24 says, So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, to me, when I read that, it's like, it seems to me like it's more than just, hey, look what dad did. I mean, it seems like there's more there that's not being described, but whatever the case. Verse 25, then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. Now, what's interesting, it's Ham that went into the tent. Ham who saw his father's nakedness and came out and said, hey, you know, check this out, you know, and, and, and ridiculed his dad and stuff. Why wasn't Ham cursed? Why was it Ham's son, which was Noah's grandson, Canaan? Well, first of all, Ham wasn't cursed because he's not cursed here, but he also wasn't blessed, okay? He also wasn't blessed. Shem and Japheth were blessed. Ham wasn't. Now, we're not sure what role, if anything, Canaan played in this. It seems to suggest that he was maybe somehow involved with this. But what we do know is that God does not punish sons for the sins of their fathers, okay? God doesn't do that. That's not, that's not in God's character. So somehow, either Canaan must have been involved, or it's a bigger curse to Ham to find out about Canaan's destiny, which wouldn't be too good. Uh, you know, Noah was hurt by the actions of his son, and maybe Noah is prophesying here that Ham would be hurt by the actions of his son, Canaan. Because if you look at the Canaanites that that descend from Canaan, they were the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, right? And they were so wicked for 400 years that when the children of Israel came back into the land after being in Egypt in bondage, God said, they're just beyond. Wipe them out. Destroy man, woman, and child. Destroy them all. That's how wicked they had become. So Noah could have just been prophesying about their future, which was fulfilled there in the book of Joshua and other places in the Bible. Verse 26, And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. He says, Blessed be the list of the blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Well, the Shem... Uh, they, the, his descendants were the Jewish and the Arab people there in the Middle East. You've heard of anti-Semitism. It actually comes from the word Shem, anti-Shemite, or, uh, because one line of the, of, the, of the Shemites or the Semites was the Jewish people. And uh, so he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. See, God would reveal himself to a particular family line of Shem, which, like I said earlier, is the children of Israel. And from Israel, of course, Jesus Christ the Savior would be born. So what a, what a blessed thing. What a blessing on Shem. And then he says, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, next week, when we get into the Table of Nations, chapter 10, we're going to look into this in, in a greater detail, but the descendants of Japheth primarily, not totally, but primarily were the European peoples. And they did, in fact, historically become much more numerous than the other lines of Shem and, uh, and Ham. And uh, the earliest Europeans, the descendants of Japheth, I mean, you think Japheth was blessed here, and he, I mean, it's, it seemed like he was probably a very godly man, but his descendants, the Europeans, the earliest Europeans, they were considered uncouth barbarians that were, they worshiped pagan deities. They were like, the, they were like, man, these guys are just, they're out there, you know. Um, but 
later on, and we'll see that in history, as they dwelled in the tents of Shem, in other words, as they dwelled under the covering of the God of Israel, the Europeans would experience a renaissance that would forever impact the world around them, a major impact, and it even impacts us down to this day. The Canaanites, on the other hand, they would be not physically or mentally or anything, but they would be morally inferior to both the line of Shem and the line of Japheth. And as we look at it next week, the history bears it out. Um, We'll be looking much more closer next week at this in chapter 10. But the end of Noah's life, verse 28. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And you know, if I did my math right, which I was, I was, I had those paper and the thing, and I was going in chapter eleven, which we'll get to that at some point. But in chapter eleven, there's the descendants of Shem, and uh, starts with Noah and goes down. And, and if I did my math right, Noah was still alive when Abraham was born uh, in the in in Mesopotamia. It's, to me, it's just fascinating. Um, lived 950 years. He's probably one of the later guys, you know. After that, people didn't live that that long. You know, after the flood, it it got shorter and shorter the lifespans to what we experience uh, generally, what we experience now. Um, but wouldn't that have been interesting for Noah, great 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 grandpa Noah, to still be there to tell you what it was like in the old days? <laughs> you know, I mean, can you imagine that? Have Noah sit there and go, "What was it like?" Because he experienced what it was like before the flood, just like when Adam was alive. Adam could Adam lived nine hundred and what nine hundred some odd years too, or eight hundred some odd years, and he went all the way down to uh, he lived all the way down to uh, Noah's dad, Lamech. He was still Lamech was born. Noah, Adam was still alive, and so all these generations they could hear first count. What was it like in the Garden of Eden? What was it like before sin in the world? You know, we have no concept other than what we read here. You know, when I, when I read about, when I told you about the animals and, and the fact that, you know, the animal kingdom is going to be harmless once, you know, in the, during the millennium, isn't it hard to fathom that? It's like, it just almost seems like a fairy tale because it's just so hard to fathom. But those people lived through it. They knew what it was like. And so to have Noah tell people what it was like before the flood, you know, we have the Euphrates River, uh, you know, in, in what's now modern day Iraq and stuff. And there was a Euphrates, the Garden of Eden, right? But it wasn't the same river. It couldn't have been the same river because the earth was in total upheaval during the flood. But Noah could say, you know what? This reminds me of the Euphrates. We're going to call this the Euphrates River. You wouldn't believe the Euphrates River. It was so gorgeous. You know, he could describe it to his descendants after him. They had no concept. And so then they're just listening to that. Can you imagine that? Um, and again, you know, I don't know how close Abram was to Noah as far as, you know, Did they ever talk or anything? We don't know. But if I did my math right, he was alive when Abram was born. So kind of interesting. But I think out of all of this in this chapter, the biggest thing for us today, and it it had an impact on me, is how do I view my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do I view them the way Shem, the way Shem and Japheth? Do I does do I cover them with love? Do I, I just you know I just overlook people's failures because we all have failures we all have flaws we all have things that are not you know we're not perfect do i look past that and do i see you as a born again blood bought paid for child of god 
Or do I look out and pick point every every fault with you? It, it, to me, that's a challenge. You know, how do I how do I view my brother and my sister? And uh, so I hope the whole Lord speaks to you through this this morning. Um, and uh, once you stand up, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we too, uh, Lord, we just take to heart what your spirit is saying this morning to your church. Lord, that we might uh, be those that, uh, Lord, we view people the way you view us. Lord, that we, Lord, that we, uh, by your love, can cover over a multitude of, of wrongs, Lord. Lord, that we, um, even like Paul says, uh, in in First Corinthians, why don't we just rather be wronged than to sue one another or go to court against another believer, Lord? Why don't we just allow ourselves to be wronged and not not just just let it go? And Lord, I know that that can be difficult for us, Lord. It, it's so hard, Lord, when when we're 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 flesh, Lord, and 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 we fail and we hurt one another. But Lord, I pray that Lord that we as a body of believers, especially here in this fellowship, Lord God, that our love for you and our love for each other would be greater than any difference or any any flaws that any of us have, Lord God. Lord, your word says that the world will know us by our love. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to grow in love towards one another this morning, Lord God. And Father, if there's any issues that maybe, maybe even this morning, maybe that's one of the things that as we came in here this morning, we have an issue with somebody here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would prompt us to reconcile with whoever that is, Lord, that we might, even if it means that we have to be the ones to back down and say, please forgive me, Lord, that we would be those that are peacemakers because we'll be blessed by you if we're the peacemakers. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that, for that word this morning. And I pray your blessing upon your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.